You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Dory Clark, who teaches at Duke University, Fuqua School of Business, also at Columbia Business School. She's also a prolific author of books like Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, Stand Out. I have Reinventing You right here. I always have to hold up the book. And also, I have The Long Game, most recent book, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. You also have a business, Recognized Expert. And It's funny, in one of your books, you were referenced as a branding expert, and yet, of course, when I read The Long Game, I think you've moved well past being a branding expert, and you're really an expert in strategy execution at the corporate and the personal level. And I say that because I teach strategy, and this has become a very academic discipline. Most of what we do in business school has become very, very academic, and yet, After I walk through all sorts of exercises around strategy, I find that the biggest obstacle is getting people to actually think strategically because they're so trapped in what we sometimes think of as permanent execution mode. Or if we think about it as explore and exploit, they're in the permanent exploitation mode. And getting organizations and people to step back and think strategically, that's something that we just don't really do in business school. And yet you've carved out a niche as a business school instructor where you can dig into these things, which used to sometimes be referred to as personal development or co-curricular. But increasingly, I think we realize that these are important if we want to do any of these things, like whether it's digital transformation or whatever. So how have you carved out a niche in business school? And do you think that what you're doing is something that will become increasingly important in business school? Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate what you're saying, and I definitely agree with you. I first started thinking about these topics a lot about three or four years ago, before the pandemic, and I was invited to give a talk at the Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna, and it's pretty broad, but they said, we want you to talk about strategy, (laughs) which could go in about 10,000 directions. And so as I was trying to figure out what I should say, I really stepped back and tried to think, what was the most salient problem? What was the biggest issue with strategy that people were having? And what I realized pretty quickly is there's almost no one in the world that thinks that strategy is a bad thing. It's not, it's not like there's an anti-strategy contingent arguing against it. Everybody thinks it's good. Everybody pays lip service to it. But the problem is that almost no one does it. And I really wanted to dig into this question of what is getting in the way? If everybody says it's so good, why aren't we doing it in our actual lives, in our actual businesses? And so that really started me on the journey in many ways of writing the long game and trying to understand how do we apply some of the great research from academia and elsewhere about strategy and really make it accessible to people in their own lives so that these great tools can actually be useful. But I think a lot of the insights that you have are drawn from philosophy. In many ways, I've had a number of podcasts where we talk about attention and we talk about 
the examined life and we talk about being intentional about how you spend your time and how you pursue your goals. And this is actually, it's a deeply philosophical notion and you have a background in philosophy and theology. Do you think that that background gives you a perspective, maybe one that more people ought to incorporate? I don't think that when Pascal was writing about divertissement, I don't think he was thinking that, you know, this was distracting you from running your business or your career. I <laughs> it was kind of distracting you from the pursuit of God. It's insightful in every respect when it comes to thinking about how we should be living our lives. Has this background in philosophy and theology helped you to see things a little more clearly maybe or help you to arrive at these insights a little bit more quickly than would have been the case otherwise? Well, thank you. I have a BA in philosophy and a master's of theological studies. It's definitely shaped the lens that I see the world through. Of course, I chose to study those things because I had a kind of natural bent toward that or a natural curiosity toward it. But that is the sort of initial foundational frame that I learned in terms of thinking about the world. Part of what I think in the early days felt like a challenge to me or perhaps was a credibility challenge that I had to figure out how to overcome, but I think now perhaps can be a strength because I do have experiences that show me how to see the world differently, is that while I am teaching in business school programs, you were mentioning Duke and Columbia, which I have affiliations with and I've taught at a lot of other business schools around the world, I don't actually have any training in academia from a business perspective. I don't have an MBA or a PhD. I actually went to a liberal arts school, so I never took a business class. So all of what I have done in the corporate world has essentially been self-taught and then learned through the experiences that I've accrued over the, I guess, 16 years that I've had my consulting firm. So I think it does mean that I'm coming at things from a slightly different perspective. That is true. In many ways, you practice what you preach, right? There's a lot of autobiography in your work. You talk about how you created your own brand, right? And how you've managed your time. The things that you've done from being an assistant producer on a Grammy-winning jazz album to going to the School of Musicals, which is pretty crazy, you sometimes refer to this as optimizing for interesting. Now, this is something I could totally relate to because I think of myself as doing this, but you're still kind of using the language of optimizing. And you do talk about efficiency and being more efficient. Is there a tension there between optimizing and efficiency and pursuit of the interesting? Is there some need to allow for a little bit of inefficiency to creep in, a little bit of serendipity? Aren't you falling prey to some of the things that you're concerned about if you've got your goals and your blinders on and I'm going to pursue the interesting, boom. It's a little bit paradoxical, isn't it? If you carry it to its logical extension, it could be paradoxical. I think, as with all things, we need to hold it a little bit lightly. I mean, certainly, I am not a believer that we have to be optimizing every minute of our time. One of the other frameworks that I talk about in the book is thinking in waves and just recognizing where are we in the wave? We can't be focusing on all the things all the time. We can't be going great guns all the time. There are periods where we need rest or take a step back or reevaluate things. I, I don't, I think a world where we can't at least periodically veg out and watch Netflix is a sad world. <laughs> I also think it's an equally sad world if all we do is veg out and watch Netflix. So to go back to the Greeks, all things in moderation. But one thing for sure about me is 
even though I don't have formal business education training, I'm really a fangirl of all of these things. I think that some of the frameworks that people have developed to think about business are so super useful for life. And I think that perhaps one of the things that I'm keen to do is to help bring those ideas to a broader audience to expand their applicability. One of my favorites is the progress principle that Teresa Amabile talks about. And some of your listeners may know the basic idea is that she and her husband, Stephen Kramer, years ago did this study about what makes for happy, fulfilled workers that feel like, yes, they're doing good things, they're moving forward. And what they discovered is that the single biggest indicator is that on a given day, that someone makes progress, even a small amount of progress, on something that feels meaningful to them. And so I think there's a place for the hobby that's just a knock around whatever the heck hobby, like, okay, I'm just going to the game or whatever. But I also think that there is something inherently pleasing to us and meaningful to us as humans if even with our hobbies, frankly, we can feel a sense of progress and mastery toward a goal. Now, it may in some ways be an arbitrary goal. I take ping pong lessons. At the end of the day, who really cares if I'm an amazing ping pong player? Like, I'm probably not going to make it to the Olympics, let's be honest. But it's nice to see week to week that you are getting better and that your skills are improving. And similarly with writing musicals, I went from literally not knowing how to do it to now having written a complete musical and learning how to do that and master that. And I think that's how we keep ourselves sharp and how we keep ourselves motivated, whether it's in the professional or the personal sphere. One of the things in the strategy world we talk about is, you know, strategies about choices, deciding what you're going to do, but also more importantly, probably deciding what you're not going to do. And when you're pursuing your restless curiosity, it's hard to say no to things, but you have to you say in the book, figure out what it is you're content to be bad at and think about what you're going to cross off the list. But it's going to be different, I think, if you're kind of an independent person like yourself. Uh, like me, I, I'm an academic, but I, I can teach what I want and when I want, and I can pack in all sorts of other things, and I can just decide one day I'm going to do a podcast like this. And by the way, that came about as a result of a life planning session that you recommend. But if you're an executive with responsibilities and with deliverables and you're running the ship and you, you have a lot less flexibility when it comes to deciding how to allocate your time, how should we think about that? I mean, you mentioned 20% time. Is an executive going to have the same 20% time as the individual contributor at the bottom of the pyramid? How should people be thinking about time management, not only from their own perspective, but if you're running a large organization, how can you put in place a work environment that allows people to balance the execution piece with the kind of exploration piece? Yeah, this is, of course, a really important question, Greg. And it's true that you have a lot more leeway as an entrepreneur or as someone with, say, an academic career where you're getting to call the shots a little bit more than someone who's working within a corporate environment where they have a boss and they have deliverables and things like that. So I think the first thing to be said is I do think that the same principles apply, but we may need to tweak them slightly. Allocating 20% of your time to more experimental or long-range projects probably is too much. It's probably not going to be feasible with what is being demanded of you. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean there's no options. Sometimes people say, oh, well, if I can't do that, then I guess I can't do anything. And that is also not true. What might be feasible is 10%. What might certainly be feasible is 5%. Almost anyone can find 5% 
of their time as wiggle room that if you are strategically allocating that over a period of time, and I mean, 5% of your time in a week or two is not going to get you very far. But if you're reallocating 5% of your time over the course of a year to exploring a certain idea, a certain new skill, something like that, that actually really can add up. And so it's just being persistent about pursuing it and being vigilant about carving that out. I think the other thing that, of course, is a possibility, and it requires some political strategy and finesse, is getting others on board with it. There's only so much you can do within the current parameters, but that doesn't mean you can't change the current parameters. If you are able to convince your boss of the value of the idea that you want to pursue, you may, in fact, get the green light to allocate 20% or even more, who knows, to it if he or she thinks that it seems promising. Now, is the 20, so the 20% time is often thought of as time for exploring and trying out new things, but th that seems a little bit separate from the kind of strategic thinking, which you talk about. You didn't specify an amount of time that needs to be set aside for that, but presumably you need to set aside time for reflection and for this long-term thinking. How do you do that in practice? I run these workshops for corporate executives where I use this framework that I borrow from, I think it was in the DevOps literature, right? There's like planned work, there's firefighting, then there's test and learn process improvement, and then there's like true strategic thinking, which is long-term horizon thinking. And that, that's not even, there's, the 20% is not even in there. That's already like 100%. And I argue that when the world is changing more quickly, and the more senior you are in the organization, the more you need to devote to part four and part three. But most people, it just gets completely squeezed out by calendars get completely full. And then on top of a full calendar, all the firefighting comes in. And I just finished a program with an IT company and everybody was just like, I'm so busy. I'm so crazy. I've got so many deadlines. Why do you suppose, first of all, why do you suppose companies organize themselves in that way where they basically suck all the oxygen out of the lives of the employees so that they can't actually think strategically. And then even when individuals are given the flexibility to arrange their own time, why do they arrange it so that they are constantly busy? Yeah, these are very important philosophical questions. And I think the answer to the first in some ways is that we, collectively we, are still caught in almost 19th century ways of measuring employees. We know how to measure industrial output. There's no reason why, if we're making the proverbial widget, you wouldn't say, well, make as many widgets as you can. You know, that's just good business. But we haven't figured out, really, how to measure the much more nuanced production of knowledge workers. And if it's not measured the same way, we're still falling back on the same criteria. It used to be people would complain about, oh, all they care about is FaceTime in the office. Well, obviously, that's a little different now. <laughs> but you still but, have these meetings that are back-to-back -back with no cushion in between. Yeah, you still get back-to-back -back meetings, and you're still, at least in many corporate cultures, graded, quote-unquote, on how quickly you're responding to the Slack message or whatever. So there are these kind of dumb proxies that we're relying on because we don't know what else to rely on. And I think that's part of the confusion that gets bundled in. And then people respond to incentives, of course. And so if we feel needed, 
if we feel important, if we feel like I'm doing a good job as a result of optimizing for those things. Oh, I met with so many people. I had so many meetings. It's hard to back away from that, even if intellectually we know that's not really where the real value is generated. I think that it's almost the work of Thomas Kuhn, where he talks about shifts in scientific paradigms. And there's this problematic period where the old way of understanding the world has a lot of cracks in it, and we know it's not quite right, but we haven't settled into a new understanding or a new paradigm of how to think about things. And I think we're still figuring that out. So part of this is about stepping back and just doing a systematic kind of operations analysis of how you spend your time and how you do what you do. And it's hard to argue against that. But when it comes to setting aside time to think more speculatively or or run these experiments, it seems, you know, the pressures of urgency, right? If you have a super high discount rate, like you don't even know if your company's going to survive past the next six months, it's harder to make the case for, hey, let's make investments that might not pay off for a year, two years, five years, 10 years. So I think the long game is an argument for thinking in decades. But at the corporate level, companies don't have decades. Most of these companies won't even exist in a decade. So how can you make the case for thinking in decades in a world where the life cycle of companies is so short? I think the first answer is it's not always appropriate, actually. One of the things that I think we all learned during the pandemic is it is not that short-term thinking is actually a bad thing per se. Short-term thinking is quite valuable when you're in a crisis. That's, in fact, that's exactly what you should be doing. But the problem occurs when we get trapped in so much of a rut that that's all we do, that we forget about long-term thinking. I was really struck in writing The Long Game by just the parallels between strategy for our personal lives and careers and also investing. And, you know, if we're investing money, if we're investing our finances, everybody understands that if your portfolio is overweight in a certain asset, that may be great while that asset is performing well, but it is extremely dangerous over the long term because there probably is going to be some kind of a reversal. And so similarly, we have all been overweight in our short-term thinking asset class over the past two years. And sure, good, we needed to be. But if we keep that up, that really becomes a liability. And what I'm arguing for is that now that things are a little bit more stable, I mean, of course, it's not to say there can't be some other tidal wave that hits us that we aren't anticipating, but it at least seems like things have calmed down enough that we sort of understand, you know, we can wrap our arms around what the COVID problem is and we're, we're kind of figuring it out, that this is the moment where we should begin to start rebalancing the portfolio and saying, okay, I've pretty much been ignoring long-term thinking for the past two years, so let's start to restock that a little bit so that we can get back into balance. One thing, though, Greg, that I'm curious about, I want to hear more about this long-term thinking retreat that you did that resulted in the podcast. How did that come about, and what were you thinking about? What decisions did you make? Well, it wasn't actually a retreat. I was uh, driving to Tahoe with a friend, and so we had three hours to kill, and she's like, I want to do this exercise. Where do you see yourself in a year? And now, a year's not a long term, right? A year's pretty short in many ways, but when you're basically just focused on what does your calendar say tomorrow, a year is actually a fairly long time. And so I rattled off things that I'd wanted to do for my entire life. So the podcast, actually, the idea came up in the late 90s when I was listening to 
I know in France, they have a Béachelle and Epistrophe, and they have all this stuff, right, where they, people would dig into things on TV. And I thought, wow, what we have on TV isn't really quite as, as intellectual or in-depth. And I thought, we really need something like that. And I remember talking to my professor about it. But we didn't have, in those days, the technology where the entry costs were zero, and now we do. So that was sort of the origin of the podcast. And, you know, I just started doing it almost right away. And it followed the script of what you were describing, which is, hey, experimentation at low cost, try things out, see how they work. And you've done so many of those things. You talk in the book, Long Game, about how you began a whole bunch of different initiatives that are built around networking, that are built around constructing a career as a public speaker. And, you know, they were very inspirational. And I'm wondering, when you're teaching, what is the technique that you find most effective in getting people to change? Because in my experience, I teach behavioral economics, behavioral finance. Just describing a phenomenon sometimes might create awareness, but it doesn't necessarily create the initiative and the motivation. Last night I was teaching my class and I was talking about hyperbolic discounting. And of course, I was using all these examples from my own life. Like I still have these storage lockers for 20 years, I had these storage lockers. And every week I'm like, I should go clean that thing out and I never do it. And so I, got, I did the math on 20 years of storage locker fees and it's pretty crazy. And I'm paying for QuickBooks. I've been paying QuickBooks for five years and I never use it. And I keep thinking I should cancel that thing at $25 a month. So how do you actually get behavioral change? Is it more from narratives and stories and examples? Is it practicing like a muscle? Can you do that in a class setting, get people to actually practice behavioral change? How do you inspire it through your speaking and through your teaching? I'm not entirely sure I know the best way to inspire behavioral change. There are a lot of people who have studied that specific question longer and better than I have. One of my favorites who I actually quote in the long game is B.J. Fogg, your neighbor over at Stanford. And he talks about something that I think intuitively makes sense to a lot of people, which is basically just how do you lower the bar to such a low place that it's almost like impossible not to do it. His sort of classic example is, okay, you want to floss your teeth? Oh, it seems so hard. It's two minutes to floss your teeth, but oh, it's so hard. And so the answer is you floss one tooth. And if you can actually just get started so often we're just like psyching ourselves out in weird ways. Like two minutes is not bad. And so once you do the first tooth, you can do the rest. And that applies to so much, whether it's like starting writing a book or finishing the report or whatever the terrible thing is that we're putting off. But ultimately, I can tell you what my methodology is, which is I come out of the background. My first career that I had before starting my own business is I was a reporter. And so I think in many ways, the, the language that I'm most comfortable with, or the way that I do research, is essentially qualitative and gathering a lot of stories and a lot of examples about people who have done interesting things and trying to understand and reverse engineer their methodologies. And I think part of why I believe that's powerful is, first of all, People are very inventive and sometimes come up with some incredibly clever things that from a top-down perspective, we might not even think of, but from the bottom-up perspective of the kind of field research of discovering what people are actually doing on the ground is pretty interesting. And so you can source creative ideas that you might miss otherwise. The other barrier that I find that a lot of people have is, and they wouldn't necessarily consciously go there, 
but it's super easy for people to make excuses where they're like, it's easy for them to do it because, because they went to Harvard. It's easy for them because they're a man. It's easy for them because, and you know, like whatever the story is in their heads. And of course, that's a lot more about that person than it is about the objective truth about whether something can be done or not. But a story and research about persuasion has shown this. A story is a really good way to get in the side door so that it's essentially evading people's objections. Because if you're telling somebody, research says do this or do that, there's often just a lot of backlash that people have. I couldn't do that. Their story kicks in. But if they're hearing a narrative, which is not, oh, you have to do this, but it's, well, here, let me tell you about somebody, you know, like you who did that thing and they realize, oh, it's a lot less threatening of a way to present information and it lets it roll around in people's brains and say, oh, I'm not that different from that person. Maybe I could try it. And that can become really powerful. You talk a lot about coaching and of course, the leadership coaching is something that you do, but you also talk about people who have hired literature coaches or, right, you know, hiring, deciding if you want to learn something or become better at something to go find a coach. What is it about coaching? Why can't we just pick up a book like The Long Game and read it and take it from there? I mean, there's great stories in there. What is it about coaching and how do you go about picking a coach. And I suppose a, a mentor would function in a similar way. Maybe you don't hire a mentor, like a mentor kind of hires you or is a non-commercial relationship there. But what is it about, you know, we could talk about how to be a good coach, but I'm more interested in like, how do you find a good coach? How do you decide when you need coaching and when, you know, you can do without it? Yeah, these are important questions. It's not always easy, right? The first question is, why do we need a coach? The answer is we don't always. Sometimes a book is perfectly sufficient for what you want to do. It kind of depends, I would say, on how important the issue is to you and how nuanced of instruction you need. So I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, everybody picked up a pandemic hobby. Mine was learning to do latte art. <laughs> and I got very excited what? about trying to get good at this. And you know what? That is hard. It is really hard to be good at latte art. And I have now been trying for a year and a half. And I have read books about latte art. I've watched videos on YouTube. I even signed up for an online course about these things. It's still very hard because it's about this kind of eye-hand coordination thing. You know, frankly, for something like that, it is easier to have someone like literally grab your hand and be like, no, Dory, like this. And so I decided at a certain point, because I do try to, you know, eat my own dog food. I'm like, I should hire a barista coach. This is a thing. You can find these on the yellow pages, right? I don't think it's really a thing. But the truth is, you can convince someone to take your money for almost anything. So I asked, I have a friend who works at a coffee shop. And I asked him, like, Danny, can you teach me? And he's like, you know, I'm not really that good, honestly. But he said, I can refer you to some people who are good, who are the best latte art people that work with me. I'm like, okay, great. So one person, this is the challenge, right? One person was like flaky and never even emailed me back. The second person did email me back and great. Okay, I'll, I'll pay you 50 bucks. Come to my house for like an hour and just show me how to do this. And the truth was, 
she wasn't that good of a teacher. Like after an hour, I'm like, mm, okay, I understand this maybe a tiny bit better, but I felt like it wasn't super helpful. So I'm still looking for like my soulmate barista coach. I would still hire a barista coach in a second if there was somebody who actually was not just good at doing it themselves, but was good at teaching you that art. So this is why it can be challenging. Referrals from friends, of course, trusted friends who know what you need, who know your personality. But this is something that I've thought about a lot. You were mentioning, Greg, earlier, my Recognize Expert course, which is a, an online course and community that I run. It is a lot of people who are professional service providers. It's not exclusively, but it's a lot of coaches. It's a lot of consultants. And the big question that so many people have as they're working to build their business and working their, to build their brand as they're starting out is, oh my God, there's so many coaches and consultants. How do I distinguish myself in the marketplace so that a client would be interested in working with me? And so I've really developed a pretty comprehensive methodology around that because that's, this is a big part of it. We have to very aggressively find a way to put a stake in the ground one of the ways is content and content marketing. That's not the only way, and I can go into more detail if you'd like. But really, it's about showing people, it's giving them a way to try before they buy. And if you're doing content creation, whether it's writing articles, whether it's writing books, it could be doing a podcast like this, it could be doing a video series, but it's giving people a way to sort of test out super low risk without even having to contact you. Do I like what this person says? Do they seem smart? Are they talking about the problems that I have? Do their solutions make sense? Do I vibe with them? And if you're able to provide them that opportunity to test drive what it's like to work with you before they even reach out, that makes a huge difference because it means that they're not necessarily going to be in shopping mode when they're talking to you. They already know they want to buy because they're like, yes, this is the person who speaks to my needs. And that's why it's so important for professional service providers to, to really get serious and be thoughtful about their marketing efforts so, because it's a far better way to attract the right clients to you. Do you think this is a growth field? If you look at professional sports, for instance, right? You look at a Tom Brady. This guy has probably 20 coaches. <laughs> he's got a nutrition coach and he's got a passing coach and he's got a muscular fitness coach. And many of those coaches are paid for by the team. I think he hires a bunch of coaches out of pocket, right? But he's got probably a support staff of 20 people. And when you make 25 million a year, I guess that's fine. We've got plenty of executives that make that kind of money. They don't have 25 coaches. They don't have a meetings coach and a speech coach and a management coach and a board relations coach. And why do you suppose it is that if you're a ballerina, if you're, a, you know, you have a coach, <laughs> you know, why is it that, that managers are stingy when it comes to hiring coaches? So even though there are plenty, it just seems when you compare it to other disciplines and say the arts. If you're an opera singer, piano player, you're going to have uh, coaches. Is there something about business? We just think that this is a natural skill, that people are born knowing how to be managers. We give people MBAs and then we send them on their way and maybe they'll pick up a couple books along the way, but they don't really have this army of coaches available. You're raising an important point for sure. I think the discussion that we hear a lot sometimes is like, are leaders born or made? Are entrepreneurs born or made? And it's like, what a dumb freaking question. I can't stand it. Because first of all, it's offensive to me, the idea, like being a person who believes in merit, who believes in democracy, like the idea that there's a certain class of people that you are and you aren't. It's just fundamentally offensive to me. Of course, I believe that anyone can be a good leader. Of course, I believe anyone can be a successful entrepreneur. Now, the key thing, of course, 
is you have to work toward that. It's not that you just waltz on and suddenly it's successful. You need to be thoughtful and to work toward it. But I truly believe that anyone can do it. And I think that the idea that like, oh, some people can and some people just inherently can't, it comes from two places, neither of which I think is good. One is a kind of fatalism where it's like, I guess I'm not like that, so it'll never happen, which excuses you from making the effort. The other place is, well, I am like that, and essentially I'm inherently superior. Also really not good. So yes, I am firmly in the camp that we all need to be in the kind of Dweckian growth mindset and continuing to get better. I think that's really important for us to embrace. And coaches can be a big part of it. I think what's interesting, so you were mentioning this earlier, background that I come out of is the kind of nexus of communications, branding, marketing, strategy, all that mishmash of things together. But those are skills that a lot of people either think they already possess or think they should possess without necessarily having studied it or thought about it deeply. For kind of, I'll call them in air quotes, more technical skills like finance or in the case of an opera singer, maybe, you know, your vocal technique or in the case of Tom Brady, maybe your weight training routine. Those are things that most people probably recognize. Okay, we're not born with that knowledge. Some people possess more knowledge than I do, and so therefore it's appropriate for me to hire them to tell me about it. But I think most people probably overestimate their ability to weigh in. I just have a really good sensibility about colors, and so I believe the logo should be purple, and I think the tagline should be this. Of course, they, they think that's marketing, and it's okay, that is like the tiniest tip of the iceberg of marketing, because it's the whole strategy that underpins it, which is the crucial part, not like what shade of Roy G. Biv it should be. But I think that a lot of that gets missed in the popular discourse, and it's to our detriment, because if we are able to arm ourselves with genuinely helpful people who can help us learn faster, that really is powerful. Yeah, well, I think for everyone who is overconfident in their capacities, there's probably someone who's underconfident and who thinks that they can't succeed as a leader and don't venture into that domain, right? But I think, you know, when we think about the lifespan of companies and how they're getting shorter and shorter, um, the lifespan of your career at a particular company is even shorter than that, right? So the days when you could go work for General Electric and spend 40 years there, those are gone. And in those days, there was a lot of kind of corporate training, corporate education, where you'd go to General Electric University up there in Crotonville or whatever and get this training. Yeah, yeah, I've taught up there. Yeah, but now you're kind of on your own. You're in charge of your own career and you're in charge of your own career development now because companies aren't going to really see the benefit of investing in you as much as they might have in the past. This kind of throws a huge burden on people because then they have to really figure out what they need to do and figure out the best way to achieve it. Career management is thrust back onto the individual. This results in a lot of pressure, right? How do people, how do people navigate this responsibility? How do they embrace it? How can you actually be a long-term thinker about your career when your career is in constant flux. I want to go back to a point that you made earlier, Greg, which I thought was a great one, where you were asking about corporate strategic thinking and how can companies be thinking long-term if even their survival is not assured or just statistically most companies probably won't be here in 20 years or 30 years. 
why should we bother thinking that far out? I think something that's the flip side of that coin, which is really important to recognize, is you will be here in 20 or 30 years. And obviously, depending on one's age and when you're thinking of retiring, the arc may be slightly different. But the truth is, I think also, frankly, some of us have these like very outmoded thoughts. Like I hear from people sometimes, I'm washed up, I'm over 50. It's like, do you understand that actuarially, you're probably going to live like 45 more years. This is really premature. You need to start thinking about that arc. And we are going to be here for a long time. And so even if the arc with a particular company might be shorter, the arc of thinking about our own careers is really important. And that is the variable that is going to persist. Like a lot of things, it's a double-edged sword, right? On one hand, yes, it's an extra burden. It's an extra thing that we have to worry about in terms of managing our own professional development. We don't just kind of step on the escalator at age 22 and then, okay, they're just, you know, raising us up with the things that we need to do. There are some benefits to that paternalistic system, but there were a lot of problems with it too, obviously. We had this kind of organization man type situation where you'd get moved around the country and didn't have, or the world, you didn't have a lot of control over that. You might not necessarily like what you were doing, but you didn't have a lot of ability to change it. You just had this path. Now, I get called in to speak really frequently at companies, and one of the things that they want me to address, which is a source, I think, in some cases of distress for their employees that they want to have addressed, but also, frankly, I really am a believer as an entrepreneur that a huge opportunity is that the traditional career path, the traditional career ladders where, okay, you do this and then you do this and every 2.5 years you get promoted to the next thing. There's a sense of existential certainty that comes with it that people like and that is gone. But on the other hand, we have an enormous ability now to carve our own career paths. If you suddenly decide, you know what, I want to move from sales to HR okay, pretty much nobody's stopping you. You can raise your hand. You can say, I want to do this. I want to meet this person. I want to shift over here. And in many companies, that's actually fine now. You have a lot more leeway to carve your own unique path. And of course, that requires somebody who's a self-starter and somebody who is motivated to do it. But for someone who is, the potential upside, your ability to, in many cases, move faster or to really get interesting assignments or things that wouldn't have traditionally been offered to you, if you were willing and able to be proactive about it, you now have opportunities that never would have been the case if we were operating back in 1985, whatever it was. I'm actually curious, Greg, this is your world too. When you think about strategy and your understanding about some of the principles that you teach about behavioral economics and more, how do you think about applying them to your life and your career or the lives of the people that you advise? I don't know whether I'm the best person to talk about it precisely because I don't think there's a clear boundary between kind of life and work. And you talk about, you don't use this term, right, work-life balance, but in the book you talk about how you need to set limits on the amount of time you devote to work and so forth. But when I was reading about your life, it seemed to me that in your life, the boundary between life and work is blurred, right? And what you do that you get paid for is stuff that, you know, if you had a 
billion dollars in the bank, I think you'd probably still be doing most of it. So for someone like me, where everything I do, if I go to the symphony, I think of it as work, right? Because it's the work of developing myself into the person that I want to be. And when I speak to executives, oftentimes I think that this is life, right? This is me doing what I'm called to do. Now, granted, there are times at 7 a.m. when I don't really feel like waking up, and there are times when I'm just rehashing something, the same talk that I've given a million times, where it does seem a bit like work. But the boundary lines are, are quite blurred, whereas a lot of the people that I speak to, they do have a very clear boundary. It's like, okay, before five o'clock, I'm in the office doing this stuff after five o'clock, that's when the real stuff begins and I get to hang out with my kids and so forth. I'm kind of an advocate of blurring that boundary, but then if you blur that boundary, then you're often accused of violating the work-life balance rules. So how do people like us who have this kind of blurry boundary, are, are we even qualified to talk to people who, for whom work is work and non-work is non-work? Is it possible that in the future, everyone will have vocation which enables them to seamlessly integrate these aspects of their lives? I try not to be overly prescriptive to other people about, this is what you should do. This is how you should live your life. I What I try to do is to give people frameworks that enable them to make the best decision for themselves. And I think the one piece that I think you were probably alluding to is toward the end of the book, I write about a guy, a friend of mine named Dave Crenshaw, who is appropriately, he is a like a time management expert. And he is very thoughtful about how he deploys his time. And he manages to have the successful business, high income. He takes two months off, two full months off every year. And he is very strict personally about, okay, I'm going to stop work at X time each evening. But it's not that it's the right way to do things. The reason for him is that he decided early on, and he talks about this in, in, this in the book, that the family that he grew up in was like not great. It was not a great family situation. And so ever since he was in college, when he was thinking about how he wanted to structure his life, he's like, no, family's going to be first, and I'm going to be like a great dad, and I'm going to spend a lot of time with my kids, and that's really important to me. And so that's why he's doing that. I think that if someone was in a situation where they loved what they were doing and they did not have other, I'll call them competing obligations, then yeah, keep doing that. That's fantastic. I want everybody to be able to maximize their happiness, their enjoyment, their fulfillment. I think that in Dave's case, it's about making the choices that enable him to optimize for the things that are most important for him specifically. Yeah, and I was on vacation last week, <laughs> I was skiing, but of course, at the end of the day, I'd come home and read books like this, right? And I didn't think of myself as in the leaving vacation mode. <laughs> I was like, this is just what I do, right? I read books like this. So one of the things that you talk about towards the end of the book is you talk about networking and you know how a lot of people think of this as a chore. We're social animals and we make friendships, we make connections, we talk to people. And sometimes we do this in a very intentional and strategic way, and other times we do it in a looser way. And I think you're arguing that one of the reasons why we feel awkward about it is because we're being a little bit too transactional about it. Is there a clear line between kind of networking and friendship development? Do you have to go into every interaction with other people without a preconceived notion of where that interaction is going to go? How can people cultivate more fruitful relationships in both work and life? 
Part of what you're alluding to in the long game, I cite some research by Francesca Gino at Harvard Business School, where she has done a lot of interesting research around how networking makes people feel dirty, like in a literal sense, they feel dirty from it. But I wanted to tease that out. And I I talk about it in the book that ultimately, why do you feel dirty? What's that about? It's not an inherent condition of networking, actually. What it is, is that people feel dirty, frankly, because the way that they're approaching it is wrong. I'll just put the stake in the ground. They're approaching it wrong. They're approaching it in a way that is about using people and they don't feel good about that, which I would say is entirely appropriate. We shouldn't feel good about that and we shouldn't do it. The problem is that a lot of people in their heads have this idea of, oh, here's what networking is. What networking is, is that I'm going to plow into a crowd and I'm going to go get something. That's a terrible way to live and a terrible way to be. I don't want anyone to think that's what networking should be. First of all, because it's ineffective. And second of all, because it's just gross for everybody. What we don't feel dirty about is just making friends with people because that is what humans do. And it is, of course, natural to become friends with people that we feel commonalities with. Many of them may, in fact, professionally overlap. It would not surprise me if a lot of your friends are fellow academics or people who are in your field or things like that. That's not because you're angling for something. It's because you have a lot to talk about with them. And so I think that we need to go into relationship building and networking with just remove the preconditions. Don't When things are weird is because we make them weird, because we have agendas in our head. What am I going to get out of this? Oh, how can I somehow contrive so that in the conversation I can get him to ask me about X so that I can ask him to do me a favor about Y? That's terrible. My mantra in the long game is no asks for a year. If you're making a friendship, if if you're building something with someone, take it off the table. After a year or two, fine. By then, you're presumably good enough friends that it will be natural. But for the first year, no asks that involve political capital. Just focus on getting to know somebody and building a real relationship. I think that's been one of the things that has been very helpful for me in my podcast is that I'm just, there's no no agenda. I just want to have these conversations. But when I read books, oftentimes by authors like yourself, I can speak spot the embryo of the next book in the the book that I'm reading. And so I love to speculate about what's next. And towards the end of the long game, you mentioned that, you know, really the book is alluding to this notion of character, right? And when I think character, I think virtues. And maybe you're going to circle back to your original (laughs) training in philosophy and theology and start thinking deeply about what it means to, to develop character, to be intentional about character and maybe think about virtues that you want to inhabit as an individual. Is this sort of a background theme? Is this sort of a background screenplay, soundtrack existing throughout all of your work, this focus on character and who you want to be as a person? I like to tell people that there's the question of what do you want, there's a question of how do you want to live, and then there's a question of who do you want to be. And we spend most of our time on what do we want, when we should probably spend most of our time on who do you want to be, and then the rest will flow from that. Is part of your work getting people to shift their attention away from what do you want to who do you want to be and how do you want to live? I think it's a really interesting question, Greg. I'm also cautious that sometimes you don't want to get too far out of your lane because you can reach a point where people are like, 
Yeah, I didn't ask you about that. <laughs> we'll have to see what the market wants there. But certainly questions of how we should live, how we should think about our own self-development are things that are important to me, for sure, and themes that are interesting to pursue. I like your speculation. So we'll see how all of this plays out. I, I definitely have not yet figured out the topic of my next book. So I will take it under advisement. I appreciate it. We will certainly keep our eyes open for it. Dory, thanks so much for joining me. The latest book is The Long Game. How to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. I think that's a fantastic read. Also, Reinventing You as another oldie but goodie. I guess it's not that old. The Entrepreneurial You and Stand Out. And also the online initiative, Recognized Expert. Check that out. Thank you, Dory. Greg, thank you so much. For folks that are really into these questions of strategic thinking, I'll just mention too that I have a, a free long game strategic thinking self-assessment and folks can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. And it's really been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. We'll be sure to put that link on the website. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.